Before we begin, we want to take a moment to thank our sponsors at Audible. Now that the weather's getting nicer, I'm back to reading and listening to books in the park. And with Audible, it's never been easier. Every month, I get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection. In addition, I get access to news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. If you go to audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast, you'll get two free audiobooks on us. Download thousands of titles offline anytime, anywhere. Having trouble deciding what to pick? Audible lets you keep your credits for up to a year. Find your summer read and support your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, what currently inaccessible film do you wish was more widely available? You know, I was thinking about this, and there's certainly films that are unavailable in the U.S. that I wish were more accessible. I mean, you know, if you if you live in Europe, you can access Abel Gonz's Napoleon pretty easily, but here in the U.S. you can't, things like that. But one that occurred to me that I think is an important artifact that I wish we could have, and I think especially now there's more argument to, to have it, is uh, a film that is not available because the film's subjects do not want us, or the surviving subjects don't want it to be seen. Uh, which is Let It Be. You know, the Beatles had uh, ostensibly four theatrical films, five if you count Yellow Submarine. Well, I guess Magical Mystery Tour wasn't theatrical in most cases. Anyway, they had, they had films. You can easily watch Hard Day's Night. It has Criterion. Help is available on Blu-ray. Magical Mystery Tour, harder to find. But Let It Be, they will not release on home media because uh, the Beatles, when they saw the film edited together, felt that it made them look very bad. It's a very bitter movie. It's a very sad movie. Um, you know, my father talks all the time about seeing it in theaters and just how depressing it was to see because the film shows you the Beatles breaking up. And in fact, Let It Be is crucial to perpetuating the narratives around why the Beatles broke up. It's, you know, all of the blaming Yoko and all of the iconic imagery of that last era is from that film. And our idea of why the Beatles broke up and how they broke up comes from that film. And I think that especially now it should be accessible because now we have get back on Disney plus, you know, the, the Peter Jackson thing that counters that narrative and, and shows that, well, no, the Beatles weren't the bickering, you know, angry people that they were shown to be and let it be. There is a counter to that narrative. So I think that it's as a cultural artifact, really important to be able to see that original film that kind of, you know, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, this was the legend that got printed. And I think that, now that we can see the six hours of what they were like in the studio, to be able to see how that was curated to tell a certain story and convey a certain false narrative, I think it would be so important. So I would love for Let It Be to, to finally be available for folks to see again. All right. Well, for me, this one is easy. One of the most infamous, hard to see, deranged, beautiful, intelligent, like lowbrow. It's just, just this it's one of the craziest fucking movies you'll ever see. And, you know, Paul Verhoeven basically did his own version of it last year with Benedetta. But, you know, Ken Russell made The Devils like 50 years ago. And he basically broke the world with this movie. Everyone lost their goddamn minds. Warner Brothers felt like they got fucking robbed in a back alley. They, like, really didn't know what Ken Russell was going to give them, basically. And, I mean, everybody was mad. It got. It's basically, even to this day, there's... Like, Warner Brothers will just not release this movie. Uh, sometimes it shows up on Shudder or Criterion, but it's never up long. 
you know, they basically let it out for a few, for like, it's one hour a week of, you know, exercise from its maximum security prison. They got it in, in the fucking digital files, but the devils is unbelievable. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. It's so incisive and pointed and rich and unique. Uh, There's really nothing like it. It's, it's a masterpiece that everyone needs to see. My pick is the devils. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're discussing a student film that's not from Mike and Tom's college film class. Daniel Scruggs joins us for 1978's Killer Sheep. Our guest today is a photo editor, photographer, and the founder of Black Women Directors, a digital library dedicated to highlighting black women and non-binary people in film. Danielle A. Scruggs joins us today to talk about Killer of Sheep. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for joining us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. (laughs) Thank you. I'm very excited because I've been excited for this, um, you know, uh, to peek behind the curtain a bit. uh, You know, there are times where when we're booking this show, you know, we reach out to people we know or people who, you know, we know, we know. And there are certain times where I will be up front with the, the boys on the show and I go, look, this is a long shot, but I would really just love if we could pull this off. And and this is definitely one of those for me. So it's it's incredibly cool that you're here. Uh, really oh, cool. Thanks. So especially because, you know, Tom and I also work in media. And so even just in that regard, I fully understand if you would, you know, if you took the stance of I will never look at unsolicited emails i receive in my inbox so i would not blame you in the least if you just saw a random email and went no i don't want to even see what's archive 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 (laughs) so archive not even delete well at least even that's more polite than we would expect (laughs) i had remembered and i now i can't remember where it was on some social media channel i think but i remember you posting about Killer of Sheep being a favorite film of yours and mm-hmm. and uh, how how influential it is. And even just, you know, obviously with your work as a photographer, you know, that the, the visuals of this film and how that translates over, you know, you can obviously see that. So, you know, obviously that's one reason I wanted to, but also one, the this show, we focus on the National Film Registry. We focus on that because we're very passionate about film preservation and kind of rethinking the canon. One of the things that I love, and I say this a lot on the show about the National Film Registry, is whenever one of these big magazines puts out their list of the 100 greatest films of all time, they're usually the the same films. And that's nothing against those films. But one thing that's cool about the National Film Registry is in its second year of existence, we get to talk about Paré Lorenz and Charles Burnett and Maya Darren, names that don't show up on those lists a lot and they should but you know they don't you know julie dash gets two movies in the registry julie dash is not getting put on a lot of these lists you know it's uh it's definitely a good benefit of not uh having to worry about clicks and everything and just uh, making sure the people are happy or if they're angry it's about a pick that oh everybody knows this movie so they can talk about it instead of like actually 
well, what's what's the best, most important movies? Well, we don't have to worry about the subscriber base. We just got to worry about being honest and accurate. So it's yeah. very good. Heck, this past year, uh, a film that we've been riding hard for, uh, Cheryl Dunye's Watermelon Woman finally got in. Another that's another favorite of mine. Oh, I I love that it's it's our it's our pride because we end each episode saying what we think should be in the registry, and then we make our submissions because the public can submit. Mm-hmm. And uh, boy howdy, let me tell you, when uh, Kyle was reading us off what got in the next year after we'd made our submissions, and I had submitted Watermelon Woman, you know, as as did many other people. I'm not saying I'm the only, but. Mm-hmm. The the sheer unbridled exuberance I felt of like good, it's there because it was you know, that's another one I feel like much like the film we're here to talk about today, was hard to find for a while. I feel like that yeah. was yeah, it was um, it's one of those movies that I always heard about, but like it was just yeah, it was just so hard to to access it, and then finally, um, I want to say like I either saw it on. Criterion or Canopy, one of those. And I finally saw it. I was like, where has this movie been? <laughs> like, all my life. Like, this is an amazing movie. And, yeah, so I'm really glad that it's in the registry and that people, like, more people are going to be able to access it and, like, know about it and, like, how amazing of a filmmaker Cheryl Dunye is. So. And uh, we saw that because I think a theater that Tom and I used to work at was doing a screening of women's women-directed films. And a testament to how hard some of these are to find, uh, one of the other ones we screened was uh, Just Another Girl on the IRT. Oh, yeah. Another it bit. is so hard to find a print of that film that we contacted, the theater contacted the director. Oh, wow. You know, like, hey, would you want to come do a Q&A? Also, can we have a print of it? So we had, to, we were screening her copy while, you know, while she was waiting to do a Q&A after the film. Was, uh... Oh yeah, that just that yeah, that just goes to show you just like just in general, um, how difficult it is for for specifically for black women directors to get like proper distribution and to get proper like streaming rights or like DVD rights. Like because even um like a few months ago I hosted a screening of uh well originally it was supposed to be a movie by Jesse Maple, but like there were just so many complications with like getting the print that like it just um we ended up uh screening something else but yeah like that just kind of shows and then that also kind of gets into um what ends up becoming becoming canon in the first place because then like if something isn't accessible if people can't watch it you know five times a, a week <laughs> like after you know it gets like released on video or dvd or whatever then like it then yeah like it becomes hard to like think of that film as like being part of the canon because like not everyone has like this shared collective experience of it the way that they would you know like a martin scorsese movie or like a francis ford Coppola movie now now that's why you know i wanted to talk a little bit before we get into burnett and and killer of sheep i want to talk about you know some of the work you do with black women directors and you know this project of yours and your own efforts to kind of help make these things accessible and also i think help people just find out about these films because i think you know one thing all of us share as as i i think it's fair to say big old movie nerds is that you know i i hate to i hate to you know uh throw out that label but is that there are so many movies that i think you hear about if you're interested in stuff you read about it and you can't find it and then it just becomes the kind of thing that you just desperately want to see 
you know there's so many of those yeah. in that category uh i mean i was just through on because obviously in prepping for this i was thinking about that whole la rebellion movement which i'm sure we'll get into and um uh Sankofa was a film that for so long was just yeah. a thing that you'd read and go sure would be swell if someone made that available and now it's on netflix it's just yeah. sitting on netflix you can just watch <laughs> it which to me just feels insane as Did one you, of these things that always existed as a well, I guess you know maybe someday. Oh, you know, I was um, really lucky enough to see Sankofa when I was in college because oh, wow. I went to Howard, and so and you know Haley Garima, like, um, you know he taught at Howard, and so like they had like a copy of Sankofa at the library, and so yeah, like when I saw that, like it was just, it was just really eye opening because it was just like. I'd never really seen a movie like that before. It was so truthful. Um, and it was like a movie told in a way where it's like, oh, wow, he's like really not pulling any punches. And then it made sense because like when you talk to him or like when you hear him speak, it's like that's very much like how he is. And so like kind of seeing a film that like reflected like this kind of giant personality that he has, at least like he has like a giant personality. Like he's just very like, oh, my God. <laughs> But yeah, like seeing a film that like kind of matched like that energy that he has was like this really, really incredible experience. Like I know like how lucky I was to be able to access it <laughs> in in that way. Because yeah, like and, and I mean more of his films should be streaming. Like I mean, he should be like a household name. Like Ashes and Embers, like another like just mind blowing movie. Um, Bushbama, you can't find anywhere either. I feel yeah, like yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like there's so like he's made like all these like legendary films and it's just like it i guess like in a way part of like the legend gets burnished by the fact that like it's so hard to find but at the same time it's like but i i would like to be able to just like put on netflix or hulu and just like have like a whole collection like la rebellion collection like you know like that would be amazing like because like these are movies that you know definitely need to be seen like it's like yeah and for sure killer of sheep is like another one of those that um, that falls under that category. So what, I mean, to give a, a sense of, you know, for our, for our listeners, it's just up top, you know, what, what was it that made you take on the black women directors project? And what, what was that that kind of put you in that space to, to want to pursue that kind of, not just, not just archiving necessarily, but to, to bring attention to this? Oh yeah. Um, it was more so like, I just wanted to, like learn it for myself it was just like one of those things where it's just like um you know reading about film a lot of times when people talk about race and film they talk about black men and then when they talk about women in film usually they're not talking about black women <laughs> and so and so I was like well clearly there's like you know, there are black women filmmakers out there um why aren't they really being talked about in the same way that like some of these other filmmakers are being talked about and so like it was for me it was more so like I just like want to learn more and um I just like want to learn more about like who you know learn more about the black women filmmakers that I already knew about but then I also wanted to like do more research for myself and just see like who else is out there who else is making this work and you know because I know like it it's more than what's being talked about in like in like mainstream conversations and so um so yeah i actually started it as a tumblr back in 2015 
And um, yeah, like it was more so. Um, oh, and um, I have to give a shout out to um, Sisters in Cinema. That's like another website and documentary um, by Yvonne Wellbond, who's um, documentary filmmaker based in Chicago. And uh, she has she had this website, well, specifically like U.S. based um, Black women filmmakers. And so when I was like creating the Black Women Director site, like I, I knew that in addition to kind of pointing out people based in the U.S., I also wanted to point out people based, you know, all over and like kind of really focus on like the diaspora because like there's also, just, I mean, there's just like so many amazing Black women directors um who are just like based all over the world and so like I wanted to so yeah I just like wanted to just learn more for myself and then it was just one of those things where it was almost kind of like as soon as I published it people started writing about it people were like asking me about it they're like oh you gotta make make sure like you add this person and make sure you have this person too so like that so that showed me right there that there was like this real kind of like like craving for that information the way that I wanted it. Like there was like so many other people who wanted that information as well and who wanted to make sure that black women kind of like get their, you know, get their proper due, like get their proper citation. Cause that's something else that happens a lot with black women, like in so many different spaces, like they, like they don't get credit for the work that they do. Like they're not cited properly. Like they're not, like we're not always thought of first when it comes to being like an innovator or at the forefront or at the vanguard or something. So like, that's something that I, I also wanted to address and make sure that like, yeah, like this is, this should, this should be top of mind. Like the same way that like you name check, like any other director, like, you know, you should be name checking like Zainabu Irene Davis or like Julie Dash or, you know, like all these other like amazing black women who are making, um, you know, really important contribution. Now, before we dive into Kill Show, I just want to say this, I'm enjoying this conversation topic too. I was curious, do you think part of that too, and this might just be me, the, the especially now interest from a lot of people online and people around our age in, you know, uh, black women directors and these, these black directors of, you know, who had made these films both in like the eight, but especially 80s and 90s in particular. I, I do wonder sometimes how much that is that, at least for me, and I was a kid in the 90s, but I remember To Sleep With Anger being a big deal. I remember Eve's Bayou being a big, big deal. Uh, I grew up, you know, with Poetic Justice being, you know, a film that was on TV all the time and respected, and all the way through to, like, Love and Basketball, I think, you know, I think. Of, and there was this period of time, I feel like, and I, of course, it's, you know, as a kid in the 90s, when, you know, when black creatives were getting uh more at least let's uh, you know i'm not going to pretend it was wonderful you can spike lee has talked many times about that era and his difficulties but there was it felt like there was at least you know a, a tepid support that by the mid 2000s fell out again and i i do often wonder when people rediscover you know uh, a friend of ours podcast just did a whole series on uh gina prince by the wood and oh, yeah. there's obviously you know uh spike lee uh because we're we're based in new york we're based in brooklyn like when black Klansman came out like he was down at the alamo draft house all the time and he was seeing this huge revival and you know julie dash has got renewed interest you know i do wonder if part of that is and i wanted to hear your thoughts on maybe people our age having this sense perhaps of like it felt like in the 90s there was sort of a little you know there was a bit more of a revival here and a bit more spotlight in some senses 
and then you know there's that almost end of Camelot-esque moment where we're kind of going oh yeah what what happened They're like why did these people not get to continue making films yeah. of that level why why did something i mean you know poetic justice got an oscar nomination for that janet jackson song and maya angelou's in it and like there was this whole sort of synergy and then it just the the support structure sort of fell out i i wondered what you thought of like do you think that contributes to why now especially there is this renewed interest in reclaiming and rediscovering that work well i would say uh well actually there is like a really interesting new york new york times article about this like they they interviewed um several different black uh directors who were coming up at that time like in the 90s like late 80s and then throughout the 90s and um and they were saying that you know they did get a chance to like make like those first films but then like they didn't have the support to make second third fourth films or like there was just like a huge gap of time in between like their first and second film and a lot of um and specifically like a lot of black women directors even though like they were making brilliant work you know weren't given that support like they weren't like those support systems weren't in place and then I mean I don't I don't know if it's so much about rediscovering because like I don't think like it's it's not like those directors or those films were ever forgotten or like you know like like when you're like talking about like you know loving basketball or like poetic justice or you know like those are things that are or like ease by you like those are things that were like very much like part of the kind of ecosystem or like the the atmosphere so yeah I I don't know if it's so much about like rediscovering as much as it is about like wanting to just like wanting to make sure that people are getting their proper due like wanting to make sure that like the people who gave us these stories and who gave us you know a language to describe like whatever it is might be going on in our lives or lives of people that we know that like they're they're getting their proper due, you know, like they're getting their flowers while those while they're still here, um, versus waiting until someone passes and then being like, oh, they were so great, they were so great. And it's like, okay, like, but can we also do that, like, while while they're all still here? <laughs> like, can we like make sure to, you know, acknowledge like those contributions, um, while people are still, you know, here to receive it. Which yeah, which is also true of today's topic discussion because. Charles Burnett is still uh still active, still out there, uh on Twitter of all things. Uh, you know, which is crazy to yeah, think listen, about. Listen, nobody can be nobody's perfect. Um, <laughs> for me though, it, I I mean just my point of, it almost feels like all of this is kind of happening. One is uh, uh an acknowledge like a very specific push for more inclusivity with the stories we tell, so it's like looking back because you can't make anything new if you don't look back. But it also feels like people are realizing the way that movies are so much more accessible now and that we're realizing the ones that aren't accessible. It's almost, well, we go, well, what, wait. We're getting, we have Netflix and Hulu and even Criterion, which does much better curation work than those other fucking places. Uh, then you got physical media companies just excavating old hard to see movies but where it, it, it feels like people are starting to realize like well we are kind of only even with as much as we have now we still only are getting like one specific kind of voice in the things we're excavating and with this push in the last i don't know whatever five ten years of let's get more diverse voices it is like well we got all this 
accessibility now like let's get these other stories like how many more how you know as much as i love italian horror movies it's like well how many how much more effort can we put on restoring old italian guys making crazy fucking sleazy horror movies when there's other voices we can you know to freshen up our pop culture day you know sometimes i don't you know, I have like, if you ever check my letterbox, like I have like ADD, like I I can't watch the same thing over and over again. So I try to like, I, I watched like an action movie today. What do I want to watch today? I want to watch something calmer or, you know, different point. I feel like that's kind of a big thing that's helping this too, is that now that it is ostensibly easier to watch movies, people are not content with what, you know, the studios as usual are pushing upon us. So I don't know, maybe that's, that could be an angle. I don't know. You know, I'm just a guy on the internet talking. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think, you know, and I agree with you, uh, Danielle, about, you know, giving people their flowers uh, while they're here. But I do just remember uh, when Harriet came out and I just remember, cause we were working in a movie theater at the time and a coworker of mine was just like, right. Remember Cassie lemons? Like these movies were good. And I, I, I think part of that, too, is, like, there's a little bit of, as we broaden the canon, there is also a sense of looking at, you know, films that we perhaps grew up with and we perhaps saw. I mean, you know, I'm, as I acknowledged up top, like, I remember seeing Poetic Justice on TV a lot. It aired all the time. And even so, uh, again, a friend of ours podcast did a, a series on John Singleton. And it really wasn't until I was listening to, you know, people talk about it and dissect it that I kind of was able to recognize, like, right, this movie that was on a lot and that I kind of just absorbed as, like, well, of course, this is a movie that's on TV. Like, right, I, this does deserve more of a, a reappraisal and an assessment and also not necessarily all the time a positive reappraisal. You know, that's the other thing that I think has, has come about is when we talk about film in general. It's not just a matter of what voices got to tell stories, but what stories we approved of and what stories uh, we kept perpetuating. And I think that that's a particular thing. You know, when you look at Burnett's work, which is what we're going to talk about now, especially Killer of Sheep, not the most accessible film. And it also actively refuses to conform to the kind of uh, poverty narratives that American cinema embraces or the, you know, any of the, the, the narratives that especially 70s cinema would have accepted, uh, you know, traditionally. And so as a result, it doesn't get perpetuated in the same way that films that necessarily, you know, it's films that kind of conform to that more. And even, you know, and that shifts over time too. I was reading uh, somebody talking about, we were talking about Sankofa before, uh, or Sankofa, I'm not pronouncing it properly, I'm sure. Oh, Sankofa. Uh, Sankofa, thank you. Um, but we were talking about it before, and it's, uh, you know, I was reading some people who were like, well, of course, this is a hugely important film, and I think I love everything it's saying. And then I read other people turning around and going, that actually felt very reductive to me, because it was essentially saying that, you know, if you if you embraced American culture, you were losing a part of yourself. And, you know, those debates keep going onward and onward and i think that when it's hard to necessarily know what a film is saying american audiences aren't always uh gonna let that stay in the cycle you know they prefer easier narratives to swallow and i think that what we're about to ostensibly talk about we you know <laughs> took a lot of time up top to not talk about charles Burnett, but what we're here to talk about with both 
this and to sleep with anger and to a lesser extent um my brother's wedding like and even um i was i've been talking to tom about i revisited glass shield recently um oh, that was a good movie here's that a was, yeah yeah here's a fun fact about the glass shield um you definitely over remember how much ice cube is in that movie <laughs> he's on the front of the poster he was all over the marketing i'm pretty sure he's in that movie for 10 minutes that is a michael boatman movie oh but yeah you yeah, would not know star, yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah with the marketing back then like yeah back then it's like you had to i mean you know, they had to use ice cube to like get people in but yeah <laughs> that was definitely like michael boatman's movie because ice cube is that fascinating case of like when everybody everywhere just suddenly went oh he can act that doesn't make sense he's <laughs> compelling he's, he's really compelling yeah, he, yeah, he's good. Like, he was really, he was really good in Boys in the Hood. I actually, I recently rewatched Boys in the Hood, and um, I was like, these are all like really incredible performances, and especially Ice Cube. Like, I thought like he definitely got like plenty of recognition for it. Like, everyone was just like that was like his breakout role. But yeah, I feel like he definitely should have got awards for that because I was he was he really made Doughboy into someone you could really empathize with, and he wasn't just like. He could have definitely been a caricature, but he wasn't, so, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I have to disagree there. I think everyone is perfectly happy with the way Boys in the Hood was treated at the Academy Awards. <laughs> no one has any qualms with the manner in which that motion picture was handled at the Oscars. Really? Na oh, yeah, everyone was like, oh, they got it right. They got absolutely it right. nailed it. <laughs> It's the, you the know, one time the Oscars got it right. It was absolutely it was right on the money. This time. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I, I evoked the glass shield because that came up in the last couple of years. That was a movie that I think was largely kind of forgotten. Even when people talked about Charles Burnett, uh, it was not a film that got brought up first. In fact, I was reading a, a piece somebody wrote in like 2010 that talked about Burnett's films and treated the glass shield as kind of like a weird Hollywood offshoot. Oh, interesting. But then obviously like we're having conversations in the last, you know, five, six years about uh, policing in America and, you know, and, and the corrupted system. And then you saw all of these film scholars kind of coming out and go, this, this movie covered this <laughs> it, like thoroughly in the nineties and people just didn't show up. But like we had it. Tank Girl and the guy from Arliss like told us about this <laughs> in like '96, um, but Burnett's films in general, I think, you know, obviously he was recognized by the registry in 1990, so there was that recognition early on. But I think amongst the general public, they are such hard films to nail down uh, in terms of you know they don't give you easy answers, you know they don't necessarily. There's nothing. I mean, you could argue Glass Shield is, is a bit more of an indictment. To be honest, there's nothing overly uh, messagey or preachy about his films intentionally so. And so I think that, you know, it's going to give us a lot to unpack today. But I think that that also, you know, uh, leads into how that's been viewed. So before we get into any more of that, I've, I've taken us far off topic, and I'm so sorry. Uh, I'm usually better about this. Uh, before we talk about any more about Killer Cheap, let's hear what the Library of Congress had to say. Uh, this is what the National Film Registry had to say about Killer of Sheep. Charles Burnett was one of the L.A. School of African-American filmmakers that emerged from the UCLA Film Department in the 1970s, and Killer of Sheep was his thesis film. 
It is simultaneously naturalistic and poetic, witty and heartbreaking. The story centers on Stan, Henry Gale Sanders, a blue-collar worker from the Watts area of Los Angeles, whose job in a slaughterhouse barely keeps his family above water. It documents his struggle to retain dignity in the face of grinding deprivation and disquieting temptation, the alienation that threatens to break him away from his family. It also provides a sympathetic yet clear-eyed portrait of a community assaulted by poverty and lack of opportunity, yet it manages to remain hopeful. So that's what the Library of Congress had to say. Uh, Danielle, when was the first time you saw Killer of Sheep? The first time I saw it, uh, first time I saw Killer of Sheep was in 2007. Um, it was at Music Box Theater in Chicago. And I remember um, my photography professor, this was like a year after I graduated. Um, but so before, my photography professor had told us about Charles Burnett. And, um, and he was saying like, you all need to watch his movies. And so, and so then um, when I read about Killer of Sheep and they were saying that Steven Soderbergh donated the money for the music rights so that it could actually be finally released, like, you know, 30 years later. So I was like, well, okay. So I, I got to see what this is about. And I, I still remember like sitting in the theater and just watching this story unfold. And it was just so beautiful because it was, like it told the truth about, you know, poverty and it told the truth about, you know, what it's like to constantly have to grind and to constantly have to like constantly be on the go to like try to like make a living for yourself and your family. But it wasn't preachy, it wasn't didactic, it wasn't it wasn't like poverty porn or anything like that. It was just very much like here's a story of this man and his family and his community. And it was just something that really, it just really always resonated with me ever since then, because it was just something that I just felt so, this is someone who really loves black people and really loves his community. And because, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't want to, sound like an asshole but like not not every black person loves black people <laughs> and, and like and some people make art where you know it's like mm, I don't know what's happening here <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know what's going on here so sometimes you can tell and so that was something that really that was that was something that really stood out to me as well it's like he allowed characters to just like have their dignity and he obviously had like a lot of love for every person who shows up in the frame, whether they're up to something a little, a little shady <laughs> or, you know, whether they're, you know, making an honest living like Stan. Um, but I, I just, I just like remember just like, just the fact that like you could tell there was like a deep respect and a deep reverence for like every character and like kind of like, and then like Watts as a whole, like you could tell, like you could just tell like every, like from every frame. And I also remember interestingly, interestingly enough, um, when the movie was like about halfway through, someone got up and walked out and like, I never saw, like, I don't think I ever really saw anyone walk out of a movie theater before, but especially with something like this, where it's like this beautifully told story is unfolding. And then someone just like got up and walked out. And I was like, what what was the straw that broke their back <laughs> like I don't know but but yeah that was something that I always remember too and 
Yeah, like, and then before I, I found it on DVD, like, every time, like, you know, if, like, Turner Classic Movies was, like, playing it or, like, if a theater was playing it, I was like, I gotta make sure I see this again because it, it was just so, I don't know. Like, it, it was just something that always really stuck with me. And it was also something that, like, just, like, purely from, like, a visual standpoint, it was something that I didn't necessarily want to copy the style of it, but it was more so, like, I just wanted to evoke that feeling in my own work. Like, I wanted to evoke that feeling of care and of warmth and respect for the people who are in front of the camera the same way that that he did. Uh, Tom, what was your first exposure to either seeing or hearing about Killer of Sheep? Well, it was doing this show. (laughs) Um, Because, as we talked about in the... uh, the uh, prologue of this episode. Sometimes movies just don't get talked about. You don't hear about them. And if they're not accessible, you just don't really get any sort of, they're just not in the brain. And uh, yeah, I'd never heard of it. Came up uh, in this season of the show. And when I get movies like that, where I don't know what the fuck they're about, I want to go in as blind as I can. So I went in. It's just a movie that even as, you know, a fucking Italian dude from New York, you just, it's just the the honesty of it really just bleeds through. You don't really need to, like, be from Watts in the 70s to just get the sense of reality and honesty that's just in every frame of this movie. And, uh, you know, that's, it's, it is, it's refreshing to, you know, you know, like I was talking about before, there's so much of the same kind of voices. So when you get to see something that really does feel unique in many ways and coming from a, a, a world that you don't see one myself personally and two just on screen. So it was, uh, you know, just immediate, just immediately. Like I got why in the second year, a movie that what until Soderbergh, like you said, kind of made it possible for it to be seen uh, like you, you get it because anybody that's worth their salt in the filmmaking industry uh, has to know that this is an important movie for what it did at the time and the honesty, which, you know, I feel like any filmmaker, again, worth their salt is all about finding the honesty in the story you're telling and bringing a reality forward, even if, you know, obviously it's all bullshit, you know, where it's not a documentary, it's all make-believe, but there is a, an, an emotional honesty and uh, environmental honesty, I guess, is I guess is a thing I would say. To, you know, it's just, Danielle mentioned like Scorsese and Coppola get talked about all the time, and it's because they're some of the best that get just bringing you into a world and showing you what it's like and getting that reality. And uh, Burnett, I mean, clearly is one of the first to get these, you know, these faces, this this neighborhood, this kind of world on screen in a real way that isn't, you know, a movie where, you know, like Fred Williamson spin kicking somebody, you know, we're getting, a, 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 you know, a little more honesty for black cinema than uh, Hollywood and even the hangers on at the edges of, you know, indie filmmaking would allow black filmmakers to be. You know, like even Gordon Parks had to like break onto the scene with Shaft before he could make the Learning Tree. No, so, vice versa, Tom. He started with was the Learning Tree, then Shaft. Yes. Wow. Yeah, was, Learning yeah, Tree was okay. first. Okay. Wow. And if folks want, it's a long day. It's a long day. <laughs> oh, of course. It's a and, and it's like ninety degrees every week, every day this week. I'm exhausted, but if, 
I if mean, folks want to hear Tom talk about Gordon Parks making the learning tree first, go back to last season. We did the episode on it, so you can find Listen, that. Listen, I, um, I, I don't remember anything. It's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm coming in like um, it's the first time doing the show. But, either, I mean, either way, like, it's um, – yeah. even the learning tree, though, feels very Hollywood and very yeah. well, I mean, it, heightened. Yeah. Whereas this – I feel like uh, – you can't not help but feel with this kind of movie that this is like a spiritual cousin to what like Cassavetes was doing. It has that indie spirit sensibility. It's even like pretty much shot the same way. Like not, not to like, not as like a slight against Burnett. Like how many ways can you shoot a movie? It feels like those early Cassavetes movies where you just have the cheapest camera you can get a hold of and you're filming on locations, probably stealing some shots too. Oh, like, you know, no. probably didn't have any permits. Well, and uh, it just it yeah. It, it's interesting you say that Tom because I was thinking about that and and Burnett in the commentary for the film even talks about uh, the guy guiding the conversation asks about digital filmmaking mm-hmm. and what do you think about the the forthcoming digital revolution and Burnett talked about he goes I think it's great that it's easier to make movies he goes but I I think that when you don't have to think about lighting and you don't have to think as much about every image you're going to shoot you lose something. Yeah. And I think that the the thing about this film, and I, I it's such a cliche and I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, and I'm going to hate myself for it, but I'm going to say it. You could take virtually any frame out of this and put it in a gallery and people would come see it. You know, the, I mean, there's the images that stick out to me. In fact, I, you know what? I'll say that. I did not realize how early on I had seen images of this film because the scene of the kids jumping across the roof most deaf uses one of those images for an album cover. I cannot remember which album it is, but the ecstatic. The ex- yeah. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. Not even to like say that it's not well shot film or anything. Like it is a you know it is a it, it's it's a well made movie. It's just got that grittier, yeah, almost like docu feel that you know Cassavetes was doing, or even yes. like you know I, there's just a you know a limitation to what you can do with how much money you have. So it even feels like the movies like Romero was making between Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, where it's just very little money. We're kind of using what we got and we're doing the best we can. Cause obviously it's film. You can't just run and gun, but it's got that immediacy and the deliberateness. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a deliberate quality. It has an immediacy to it. It's yeah. if it, if it felt more like the learning tree, I don't think the impact would be anywhere near what it is because the you know the juice in this movie is you feel like it's just you know this is life you know it just feels like you just walk you if you just jumped in a time machine and went to 1970s watts you'd be like oh yeah no this is this is pretty this is it i guess yeah that's what i like about it that um you know i i think it is beautifully shot but in a way that yeah like there's not like that kind of Hollywood gloss over it, yeah. which is I think like what makes it beautiful. Um and um and I really like Charles Burnett's blocking in particular. Yeah. Um like the way he blocks his scenes are like like I'm kind of like obsessed with it because like it reminds me a lot of theater and just like the way that he'll like frame he'll frame people within other people or like the way like like just like the angles that he'll choose to like make sure that like you can see kind of like everyone in a frame all at once. Like I, I feel like that's something that's like pretty particular to him, like the way he blocks scenes and a lot of like killer sheep reminds me of uh, 
like Roy de Caraba's photos in a way. Like there's like the way like he uses light, the way like he uses um the way like he's not afraid of shadow. Like I keep thinking of uh that scene where uh the two of them are dancing in the oh, living room together. Yes, to this and bit of earth. Just, yeah. Yeah. That's that's like one of my all time just like favorite cinematic moments. And I just love that like he shot it in a way where like um yeah, like he's not afraid of like the shadow in the scene and it's just like beautiful movie. Even though like it doesn't like um like you were saying, like there's there's definitely like that grit there, but like there's like beauty with within that. And yeah, like I think like if it was shot in like that kind of yeah, if there was like more like that Hollywood gloss over it, if there was like more of that like steady cam and like you know if there was like all of that like i don't i think something might have might have been lost from um from like how how immersive i guess it feels i was i was just gonna jump off you know talking about blocking and everything that's you know again that's a thing that's lost with the digital you know transition and it's and it's a sign of like a true filmmaker is that uh you know you 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 have a limited amount of film you got to make it stick so you got to tell the story through blocking which you know a lot of uh a lot of movies these days are kind of losing and that is you know that is the thing that helps sell the reality of this movie is that you you know it's not a documentary so you know he's making deliberate choices and he has to specifically choose where everybody's standing to get the info across and to get the reality across. Cause you know, he can't just press play, press record, I should say, and just, you know, drone around for uh, 10 minutes where nobody's, you know, who cares where people are. We'll, we'll edit it around, whatever. It's fine. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really good masterclass in a way of directing within a lim- within limitations, you know? And, and I think that to that point, Tom, I want to counter that. I think there's also that in one sense, in the financial sense, directing within limitations, but also directing without any in terms of, you know, we're talking about the, the Hollywood of it. I think that when we're talking about how he shot the film, part of it, when we're talking about, oh, to Hollywood, isn't that, as I think that it's, it is not to say that any of the shots in the film are not thought out. It's that they're not overthought. And by that, yeah. I mean, like, you know, Daniel, you work as a photographer, and I, I, I don't want you to say anything that could get you in trouble. But that said, <laughs> I do. When you have, <laughs> when you can kind of frame and shoot the images as you see them, versus having a client who is giving you, you know, very precise and very particular notes. We've all, we've, you know, all in our own ways had to sort of please a client that is sending us a lot of notes on how we want to do things. I when I'm talking about like an overthought shot, I I do wonder if you know that kind of conflict of okay on the one hand like okay this person's gonna throw throw a lot of you know scrap my way to kind of do things in a particular way versus like what you can kind of do when you are left to your own devices of it's me it's a camera and I can kind of find the environment myself. Mm, that's a really good analogy. Um... Because yeah, that that happens that happens a lot. Where and it's interesting too, because like you're ostensibly getting hired for your own particular style, but then you know if a client wants something like very very specific, and they're like, no, it actually needs to be like this, and the lighting needs to be like this, and it's like, okay, we're gonna work with that. <laughs> and um, you can definitely still find 
moments within those limitations to to still kind of like bring your own style or like your own eye to creating an image. But yeah, at the same time, it, it that is like a lot different than when you're just kind of like going out on your own and you're like, okay, no one's assigning me anything. No one's giving me any parameters. I'm going to just kind of, <laughs> just kind of go for it and see like what I come back with. There's also like some beauty within like limitations too, as far as like, if a client is like giving you specific parameters to work within, it's also kind of interesting to be like, okay, how can I still bring my own sense of like style or like my own voice into this, even though like I, I'm also trying to make sure that I'm pleasing the client too. And, you know, making sure I get paid and everything like that <laughs> from that. And so, yeah, like, uh, like, cause actually when you, when you said that, it, it reminded me of, um, what is that movie? I think, what's it called? The, the five limitations or the limitations? Oh, the, the five obstructions. Obstructions. That's it. Yes. And, and it was like really interesting to see like how like they work within like those, like almost kind of like working within constraints, like kind of forces you to be like more creative in a way. There's like something to that as well. Like there's like, there's something kind of, your creativity gets unlocked in both scenarios. Like where either where you're like kind of working within certain parameters. And then also like when you're, when you're just kind of like executing your own vision, like there's, yeah, like you can unlock your creativity in different ways, like in both situations. Now I do want to, before we jump into the, you know, other, so I I did, I I left a thread dangling on this, which is going to happen a lot today, I think. My first exposure to this film uh, came from, I think I was reading Empire Magazine, the British publication, did a list of the 500 greatest films of all time, which was like a mix of critics voting and fans voting, which makes it the most deranged list you will ever find in your life. (laughs) Folks, look it up. Not anything new. It's like 500 movies. I think it was like 2008. I was just starting college. And you'll find things like, you know, Ohazard Balthazar on there, and also Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. It's going all over the place, gang. Uh, what are you talking about? That seems that seems legitimate to me. One-to-one. It, yeah, no, it, it turns out that if you let people on the internet uh, vote on movie things, you might not get the clearest results. Uh, if you let fans on the internet vote for things, you will get the Flash entering the Speed Force. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Um... Oh, God. Oh, God. The Flash is here. Fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> uh, but I, I remember seeing, because at that point, I think it was still hard to track down the disc from Milestone. But I remember looking, and all they had for Killer of Sheep, which was on their list, was a very, like, two-sentence log line, just about a man works in a slaughterhouse in 70s Watts, and then the single image of the kid in the dog mask. Mm. And when we talked up top about uh, when you read about movies that you can't access and they just fixate you, you can't help but see that kid in the rubber dog mask and just go, what the fuck is this? And I remember getting the disc off of Netflix. Uh, and first off, having the idea in my head when they talked about, like, well, it's because the music rights made it so hard to see for all these years, expecting that this thing was going to sound like, you know, the 2016 Suicide Squad. There were just, like, needle drops every five minutes. And then you finally watch it and go, how was this hard to clear? Like, what what was holding this up? It's it's not that pervasive. Um, but I watched it, and and I want to talk about this up top, uh, because Daniel, you mentioned the blocking, and I think it's so important in this, which is this movie has a bit of an overture. It has a, a bit of a scene that is not necessarily related to the narrative. 
Um, the same way that like, uh, you know, a serious man does a whole scene about a Dybbuk up top and then it never comes up again. And I remember, so you, the first thing you see is, is this little boy, you know, with like tears welling up in his eyes. And then we hear him getting yelled at by someone. And then we pull back and we see who we're meant to believe is his father, right? That's, it never, you know, he never turns around and goes, I'm your dad per se, like right off the bat. That comes along later. But by the time he says, me and your mother, you pick up on him. And the thing that makes that scene so transfixing is is twofold. One is the father and the son talking exist in one space. And then we cut to wider shots of a woman holding a baby and other people in presumably the same household. But deliberately, Burnett makes no effort to try and make that geography square so that you just feel it. And I, the minute I saw it, the thing that stuck with me is there's just that moment, the the line that he says up top, that the father says, he lets out a huge cough and then says, you are not a child anymore. You soon will be a goddamn man. Start learning what life is about now, son. And like the first time I saw it, that was the moment that I, not knowing what this movie was, you know, watching it, that was the moment where I just went like, all right, even if you don't know what the rest of the movie is, it just sets the tone so perfectly for what this film is going to be exploring. And I, I, at least to me, I feel like every time I watch it, that scene clicks into place more and more. Even if we're never told, I, it never goes out of its way to go like, well, that's his Stan when he's a kid. It doesn't have to be. It's just more this overture of like, I want to remind you of this exact moment. And I wanted to kind of get, before we dive into more of them, I want to kind of get everyone's thoughts on what they felt that scene meant in relation to the rest of the film. You know, and, and their own read on like what that scene, what the message of including that scene at the top is. I don't know whoever wants to go first on that, but you know, what, what that scene means in, in relation to the rest of the film. What was striking to me about that, about that scene is that, you know, he's telling this child, I mean, he couldn't have been more than like 11 or 12 or something like that, but he's telling him, you gotta be, it's time for you to man up. Like, you gotta be a man now. And it's just like, but he's a child, (laughs) like, you know, like he, he's still a child, but like, that's something that I've, you know, seen a lot or like heard a lot, like where like, you're kind of again, like, I think specifically for, like, Black kids, um, you're kind of given not that exact speech, but something very similar, like, even when you are a child, like, you have to know how the world works right now, because the world is not going to always, you know, the world isn't always going to be kind to you. That's not to say, like, you grow up being afraid or whatever, but it's like, there's like a certain reality that black parents want to let their kids know about. And it's just like, okay, yes, you're a child, but you, you have to like, kind of have like, kind of like a grown ups understanding of like how the world works right now. So I can keep you safe. So that was like, kind of like the undertone of that scene for me was just like, I'm trying to keep you safe basically. And these are like the tools that I need to raise you with in order to keep you safe. And so, and I think like, that's like kind of relating to the rest of the movie because grows up, like, you know, Stan realizes that he, he still has like a lot of choices that he has to make as far as like, how is he going to provide for his family? How is he going to keep his family safe? How is he going to keep himself safe? Um, How is he going to do that within the context of this community? So that was, that was something that really stood out to me was like, 
telling him like you 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 got a man up and it's like he's a kid but also like that was something that was like that felt very familiar to me and just knowing that yeah like this is his way this kind of kind of messed up but understandable way of like trying to like protect him basically uh i mean not too dissimilar honest honestly because that it, it really you know again for what little i fucking know it's very you know it's it is seems to be a thing in america that uh black kids have to grow up a lot earlier uh than than us white folk uh because the world isn't going to treat them with kid gloves the way we do you know how many times do we have to see on the news you know 13 year old 14 year old black kid gets shot because you know cops oh he was a grown man oh you know he he, he was he was he looked like a grown man and then you know a 21 year old white kid blows up a black church and he gets taken to Burger King before his arraignment or whatever, you know? So that, that felt very much like, okay, I get what this scene is going for. And then the way it's setting up in my view, the rest of the movie is that Stan as rough as his mental state might be, this job is kind of destroying him in a very specific way because it, you know, he's literally killing sheep. That kind of heaviness is weighing on him as are the shitty wages and having to support his family, it does feel like it is saying that this guy, for all the strain and stress in his life, he does have a better grasp on things than a lot of the other people in the movie, maybe. You know, I kind of just go back, I I, I kind of latch onto the scene where two guys come to get him to, like, help them kill somebody, and he's like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, what? what, why would I do that? And his wife is yelling at these two guys, like, that's not being a man, that's not being... So it, it, it almost feels like that even as hard as Stan's life is, that this kid, if he takes this lesson to heart, Stan's life is preferable than anything else, where he at least has the dignity and the sense of self and the sense of righteousness, or whatever you want to put it, that as... Even if my mind's going down the toilet, I'm still going to try to do the right thing. Go into the store and the white woman's trying to clearly, like, turn him into a fucking sex object, basically. And he's just like, no, really not going to do that. You know, not not as, you know, sardonic as my masterful interpretation of the scene would be. But, um, yeah, I think it's definitely, like, kind of calling it shot, but then having a clear-eyed view of not, like, you know, he this guy's rich and he's got a great life because he took this lesson as a kid that you got to be strong and tough and be a grown man. It's just like, no, life's going to be hard, but uh, it's better to know that going forward so you can at least be a little more prepared, if not completely prepared, because, <laughs> you know, I don't think anybody would have expected like, oh, my job's going to be killing sheep for a living. So, uh, I don't know. I think that's kind of my, my two cents. I think there's also, you know, one thing you look at when you look at Burnett's filmography uh, more broadly, and I think also that era, too, of, of filmmaker, I also think there's an intergenerational element. Because an element of Stan's character that I think really sticks out in this film, and it comes up in other films Burnett makes, particularly To Sleep With Anger, is it's a lot about the conflict between the country and the city. And Stan is very much rejecting his country roots. There's a great, you know, sequence in the film where he talks about, you know, his one kid calls mom Madeer. And he's like, don't do that. And to sleep with anger, you know, which he makes in the 90s, is an entire movie about 
black people in California trying desperately to shut out the old Southern ways and the magical realism that comes with that. And I think that part of that, part of this too is, and we talked about it on, um, I forget, now I'm forgetting what episode it was that we, oh, I, th- oh, I think it was, I know. Brain. I, I think it was Learning Tree when, when Larry Strong was on, but I, I think we were talking about like, he, he made a point about like, you know, one of the other struggles is intergenerationally amongst, you know, uh, people of color in this country of any, you know, kind of like, there is also this like the old ways versus the new ways and how things generationally change in that conflict because what you have to do to survive in the 40s and 50s is different than what you have to do in the 60s and 70s. And these methods don't necessarily gel. And I do think that that point, because it's also notable the father's coughing, the father's slurring his words when he says that. There is definitely an element, I think, to this that what Burnett is showing is also like, this is the moment that fucked us all up. Like, because I think a crucial thing about Killer of Sheep that I don't think gets talked about enough in some scholarship, um, especially because, quite frankly, one thing I discovered in doing my research uh, for this film, when you try and look up the scholarship around Charles Burnett, overwhelmingly, it's a bunch of old white guys writing about his work. Surprising thing. Like, legitimately, like, there'd be so many times where I'd just be like, oh, you... And you notice that because you notice that these guys are just focusing on the poverty elements. And I think a thing that's so interesting about Killer of Sheep is it's not a movie entirely about poverty. Stan is dealing with an existential crisis. He is dealing with depression. He is dealing with emotional needs that Burnett in interviews talked about. Like He felt men of his generation were dealing with emotional needs that the previous generation never even thought about. And I think that one thing captured in Killer of Sheep, and I think that that moment highlights is, you know, we always talk about the hierarchy of needs, that little pyramid we all get in college, you know, food, shelter, whatever. And at the top of that pyramid is the psychological stuff, right, is the, the existentialism. And I think that one thing that strikes me about the film and Stan's struggle in it throughout the movie is he is, he's certainly, like Tom said, he's not wealthy and throwing his money around but he has achieved enough of a level of stability for himself and his family that he is really starting to feel the wearing down of that those existential weights but because from such a young age survival was drilled into him you got to be a man you got to provide you know if, if your mother and i aren't here you're the man of the house that i feel like throughout the film stan also feels guilty for even feeling that existential dread that I don't think, you know, Tom's absolutely right. Working in the slaughterhouse is, is wearing him down. Burnett talked about the inspiration for the film being one day he was on the bus and talked to another guy and said, what do you do? And the guy said, I work in the slaughterhouse. I hit sheep in the head with sledgehammers to kill them. And Burnett just thought, well, that's gotta be a nightmare. Um, And I do think that part of that is that, you know, this kid is being told, I don't care. I don't care. You hit somebody if they hit your brother. You get a brick, you get a bat. I don't care. You do it. You fucking do, you know, you do what you got to do because if your mom and I aren't here, you got to be the man. And it's just drilling in survival so much that I don't think that Stan, like, quite frankly, so many just men in general, I think, 
you know, one thing we talk about when we talk about like toxic masculinity, not to protect, to say that Stan himself is toxic, but the environment he grows up in, or just the pressure to be, I mean, yeah. is, the environment around him. is not being given the language to even articulate that existential feeling. To, to kind of just be so focused on providing and providing and providing that, you know, Daniel, you mentioned that scene of them dancing to this bitter earth. He gets to be vulnerable then. And that level of vulnerability is something that I think we struggle with in male-focused media in general. And not not to sound like one of these uh, Charles Burnett scholars I found online, but I, I think it's fair to say that, you know, it's a struggle It's also had when we depict black men in media in general. God knows there's, a you know, our friend uh, Vice Victus, who's been on the show uh, before, uh, always loves to talk about how the Oscars love nominating uh, sad white man movies. Um, <laughs> the year Manchester by the Sea came out, he was on a tear. God bless him. Um, but that conversely, and a point he raised once is like, you don't get that level of vulnerability as often when we're depicting, you know, black men in film. Right. There's a reason why when we talk about that kind of stuff, we always circulate the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, why don't he want me scene? Or now so many people talk about how transcendent it felt uh, in Moonlight when Chiron says, you know, you're the only one because it broke in a lot of ways the audience's expectations of, well, this guy's so hardened and he's so tough and he's so this. And then we finally get that vulnerability. I think that what makes, you know, that scene so important at the top of this film is that Burnett is just giving us the overture of like, if you're wondering why, you're wondering why a guy like me or so many, you know, folks out there cannot even deal with existential dread. It's because so early on, before we even got to know ourselves, we had it drilled into us that we had to harden. I, I'm sorry to have monologued there for a little bit, but, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> No, no, no. Just from my own personal experiences, I, you know, I worked as a butcher for a while and it wasn't the same setup like back in the day. I wasn't killing sheep or cows or whatever, but just dealing with meat and cutting up meat all day long and just getting covered in that stink and that slime and all that shit. It actually did take a toll on me. You know, I was in a bad place in my life when I was working as a butcher, you know, it there were many times I would get into fights, you know, screaming matches at, with people at bars or whatever. I almost got, you know, plenty of times I almost got into fist fights with guys during like road rage incidents on the fucking highway or whatever. And like, even to this day, I don't like eating beef anymore. It's not even like a, like, you know, I'll eat chicken, shrimp, whatever the fuck, pork. It's just like, it, it do, like working in that kind of environment really does actually do something to you in a way that I don't think people really actually understand and that is like one thing that as far away as i am from this world that there is that like universality at least for me like something i connected to on a very like specific level of like okay yeah so like he gets this thing very specifically right of how like kind of heavy this toll is which had to have been harder because he this guy's killing actually actual animals which i think for me you know, and probably other people, it adds, you get that one thing right, you go, oh, this is realistic, so the these other things have to be honest too, you know, it's, you, you get that like one entryway or whatever, and it helps you sell the illusion that you're trying to go for, so I definitely, I guess that's why I focused on the, uh, like the, that existential slaughterhouse crisis he's, he's going through, because I was like, yeah, I've been there, 
So, I mean, thank God I'm not there and I have to still be there because I have a family to provide for, you know, Charles Burnett, he got the details right. Who knew? <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and that goes to something that, um, I, I mean, a lot of people have said this, like, I'm, you know, it's not an original thought, but like, but, um, but that also goes to show you how, um, like when you get like super specific the way Charles Burnett did with this movie that like you do end up creating something universal like even though you know it, like I'm not from Watts like I wasn't born in the 70s like I was I wasn't around I wasn't thought of in the 70s yet um, <laughs> and like you know but like I was still able to find something that I could relate to and like Tom was like still able to find something that he could relate to and like you were able to find something you could relate to in like the commentary on like masculinity and and so like that's that's another thing that I really I really love about this movie is that like there there are like so many different entry points into it and that like there's something that you know initially like if you do you know kind of yeah read the log line or like you see like the the image on the DVD cover you're like oh I don't know if this is for me but like they're actually you know he's saying a lot with this with this story and that like there are like a lot of entry points that people can relate to with it. And um and yeah, that was actually um something else that I was gonna bring up, uh, that you know, this is also um, you know, just like a really good exploration of like like depression and ennui and like yep. the fact that like it's you know, you're seeing it, you know, within this black man and like I think that that's really important too because like that's something that I think now that conversation is happening a lot more, thank goodness, because like oof <laughs> it needed to be had a long time ago. But um but um so the fact that like he was thinking about this in like nineteen seventy eight and was thinking like, okay, you know what? We we need to talk about this, y'all. <laughs> like, you know, like this is like like this is something that, you know, maybe like the previous generation like just didn't even really have space to think about because like you're in survival mode, right? Like you're in, you know, because like I, I think about like my my grandparents' generation and just like everything that they had to go through. And like I'm sure they probably were having existential crises, but like there was just no space to even try to explore that or like what that meant. And so the fact that like Charles Burnett in like 1978 was saying like, okay, like we, we actually do need to talk about this. So like, we actually need to show what that looks like and not, and again, what I like about this movie too, is that like, he's not being on the nose. Like, he's not being so on the nose about it. He's not being like, Hey, Stan, I think you might be depressed. You know, like no one's saying anything like that, <laughs> but like you do get the sense of like, hmm, there's like, there's something going on here. Like there's something going on on the surface, like um, underneath the surface, like, you know, what, like what's really happening to him here. And so like that, that's something that like, I really, again, like just kind of shows that like Charles Burnett was like really kind of like ahead of his time too. Cause like he was willing to explore something like that again, like in 1978. So, um, so yeah, like that, that's something else that like, really is like fascinating about this story too that like it you know as specific as it is like every like a lot of people who watch it are able to find something of their of themselves reflected well you know we've said i've said it i say it all the time is that the more specific you get the broader your storytelling can be you know the more mm -hmm. audiences you can reach because the more specific you are the more honest it is but i i mean honestly just jumping off your point i think it's even more impressive because it wasn't even 
really 1978. He shot this in 72 and 73. Oh, that's right. That's right. It was released. Right. That's what it was. But so I'm thinking of that, like what what's Hollywood doing at the time? You know, basically there is no indie scene for the most part. So what's Hollywood doing at the time? I don't think Hollywood really even got to depression or ennui or whatever until like three, four years before this, when The Graduate came out. So he, you know, he definitely was like, oh, wait, we can do like we can do this now. And so for him to even like. Again, like you was like all the stuff you were saying, but like that quick for him to, and and at such a young age, this is like his student film, basically. This is his thesis, right, you know, right. for him to have such foresight and such uh, being able to read the tea leaves, basically, of like, okay, the graduate kind of broke new ground, so let me kind of break further ground by getting like a grittier. You know, not like it's not like fucking training day or whatever, but like a grittier, like down to earth, Cassavetian, like look into depression with in within this world that we don't get to see. So it's like this multiple layers of him being forward thinking and seeing like looking at past things. You know, he had to have seen Cassavetti's movies because this is so Cassavetti's. But then, you know, I, I'm now convinced he had to have seen The Graduate and to kind of take all of that and then make his own new thing that nobody was really allowing people to do in like, you know, again, multiple different instances, you know, movie about poverty. That's not a poverty porn movie. That's about, you know, black people. That's not about how they were slaves or whatever, or, you know, all this shit. Uh, And a movie about a guy dealing with depression. That's never telling you it's about depression. Like it is all these things that just really is just truly incredibly impressive just from like uh, just just as one artist to another i'm like fuck man you saw like you really like put had your finger on the pulse and really were able to take the things from the past and make something that is just reverberating 50 years later in like incalculable ways like that's that's just you know fucking crazy to me that's you know again charles burnett who knew yeah i do want to say tom it's funny you say that when you go well he had to have seen this because one recurring thing you discover in the scholarship around this film is how many people go well it's obviously influenced by the italian neorealists it's obviously influenced by Sica. it's obviously influenced and then you find any time it gets brought up to burnett himself and somebody goes so obviously vittorio Sica, the italian neorealist and his consistent answer is yeah no no, I never really, I didn't really watch any of that. Like I was, I saw some Brazilian films that influenced me and maybe some genre. And yeah, I didn't really get into the Italian stuff until, you know, years after. <laughs> and it's one of the, the, the other thing with Burnett is he's so modest and soft-spoken. And like, you listen to the comedy and it's just him going, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And then like the, the interview will try and prod him and be like, now, do you, uh, you know, the, juxtaposing the young children in Watts with, sheep going off to slaughter do you you know obviously there's some symbolism there you were trying to convey and he'll just go i mean there's something to that yeah all right like you know he's, he's giving you nothing i love it um but uh you know tommy you're also talking about the graduate another thing that's interesting this kind of covers a lot of ground that you know from that year 67 you've got the graduate you've also got the intergenerational conflicts of guess who's coming to dinner and you've also got one of the ultimate city versus South movies that wins Best Picture of the Year, which is In the Heat of the Night. And then two years later, you get a movie that is, 
I think, you know, if 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 Killer of Sheep takes a look at like, oh, I know you've seen the shiny Los Angeles, let me show you, you know, the 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 other side and the reality of this for me, you know, in 69 you have Midnight Cowboy which attempts to do the same thing with like, ah, listen, you go a little south of Times Square, let me show you what we got going on. Um there's so much of that, you know, and I think Tommy right to point that out that he does kind of pull in all these different elements, but in terms of what influences him, it's so fascinating that he's kind of just going, you know, whenever somebody tries to ask him where it came from, he very much kind of just goes, oh, yeah, just things. I mean, a lot, of course, also comes from his own childhood. He talked about, like, jumping across the roofs is a thing he used to do as a kid. Hitting, you know, caps with rocks he used to do. He knew somebody that would sleep with car parts so that nobody stole them. Like, all of that is shit he just had from his real life. Which is also, I guess, fascinating that in the commentary, I guess the thing that struck me a bit, and I'm certainly not going to speak to, I don't know the history of the Watts neighborhoods or, or anything like that, but he, you know, in any detail, but he makes this film that is very much about trying to depict the place he grew up and counter a narrative and be like, yes, you know, this may look bad to you. You know, it could be easy for somebody from the outside to kind of go like, they're throwing rocks. They're blowing up cap gun caps. This is a nightmare. But, you know, here's the beauty and the dignity of it. But then you listen to the commentary on the DVD, which is recorded in the 2000s. And Burnett slips into that thing where he goes, I mean, you know, when I was growing up there, you know, you, you had to be able to, to fight, but you knew you'd survive. Nowadays, it's, you know, these kids today down there, it's, it's so much worse. And it's, you know, it's so bad, you know, the kids today. And I was, I mean, I'm certainly not speaking to that, like, you know, in terms of like any crime or anything like that, but it was just kind of striking in a way to sort of hear Burnett who had in this, you know, in 72 filmed this neighborhood to kind of go like, I want to counter these narratives and I want to show you another side of things to then reflect on it. And in a, a little bit kind of be nostalgic for his childhood and do a kids today in a manner that he sort of tried to rebuke in this film by having the father character and some of the older characters do like a kids today thing. Then I thought that was an interesting kind of juxtaposition in terms of, Charles is a young man viewing things one way versus, you know, when you're doing this kind of intergenerational thing. I mean, hell, up top, we talked about Poetic Justice, uh, which is a movie I love. But as you get older and you watch it and you have that scene where Maya Angelou gives a whole speech that boils down to these young folks today with their, you know, with their hookups and their music. And you do kind of like, feel like, right, there is that intergenerational conflict even there. I, the thing that strikes me about that, I guess, is that if someone made this film today, set in the 70s, we would view this as nostalgic. We would view it as like, oh, well, you know, uh, look at the kids. They're able to play. There's something about the way that he shoots this at that particular time, I think, that doesn't give it a nostalgic quality, nor does it give it a condemning quality. There is not the... Tom mentioned poverty porn, you know, the quiet dignity porn that even De Sica brings to his Italian neorealist films, where it's like, oh, isn't this terrible? The thing that's so impressive about Killer Sheep is there's not a tone of, isn't this terrible? Or even, boy, how swell we had it. It's just what it is. I, I think that's so potent. Yeah, he's just presenting things as they are. And, like, that that's what's always appealed to me about it, is that, like, he's not... He's not making like a message movie, mm, yeah. <laughs> even though like I mean, there's obviously like a lot that you can take away from it, but like he's not 
he's not trying to say like, look at how amazing I had a grow growing up, but he's also not saying, oh my God, like it's so terrible. Like, please feel sorry for us. Because I think sometimes like a lot of mainstream outlets or, you know, award giving institutions respond to things like that a little bit better than they do stories that are more so about this is just what it is this is I'm presenting this to you as I see it and then you can kind of take away whatever it is you need to take away from it it's not something that you can easily pin down like it's not something that you can easily kind of sum up and be like oh yeah here you go here's your message like here's everything that you need to know from this is everything you need to get from this like he he doesn't do that and that's like what I really he doesn't really do that with any of his movies. And like, that's something that I really enjoy about his work. And especially this movie in particular, because I mean, yeah, he's looking at Watts and Watts has like a very complicated history. Like, again, like I'm not from there, but you know, like I like, you know, read about it and everything like that. And it has like a very complicated history, but like, I, I really love the fact that like, he's just kind of, yeah, just like presenting things as they are. And again, like, I mean, you know, like Tom said, like, you know, it's not a documentary. I mean, obviously, like, he's making very deliberate choices of what he's showing, what he's not showing as well. But I think he's definitely trying to be, like, as honest as he can be about this community and, like, this environment. Well, and, you know, I think I think a big part of why this is movie is able to overcome that is because it is so immediate. And I mean, like in the literal sense, it is, it's not a period piece. It feel it's just very much like, this is it, how it is now. So it doesn't have it. He, he doesn't have kind of the temptation to, to get to lean into nostalgia territory. So, um, and listen, everybody, when they get older, you know, whoever they are, they get, you know, every, every, people get stupid when they're older. I don't know. You know, they, they look at things the way they used to be with rose colored lenses and just be like, Oh, wasn't it so much better back then? No, you think that because you were a kid, you didn't have to worry about shit. Things were still bad. You know, he's, he still had enough foresight to put in a scene where two guys come up to stand and say, Hey, you want to go help us kill somebody? So I, I think he's just, you know, being a cranky old man, which I'm 31. I'm a cranky old little bitch myself too. I wanted to share one last uh, Burnett quote before we kind of, you know, wound up a bit, which is, I thought this was interesting too, when we talked about how he depicted things, because he said, when I grew up in the neighborhood, I understood these kind of guys better. And after going to college, I came back and felt I understood them less. So he said he, he didn't want to impose his own values on them or, quote, speak for the black community. So he consciously sat back and let them speak for themselves. And I thought that was such an interesting perspective on that because I feel like so many filmmakers, when they're talking about where they grew up, they always just try and they're like, well, I understand this. I think it's so refreshing that his point of view even then was, I'm already losing touch with this, so I'm going to let this just be. Well, you know, which again, to, you know, bring it like back to Scorsese, he kind of does that before Scorsese does. Yeah. You know, Mean Streets is filmed after this. Uh, this comes out after it because of, you know, whatever fuck it takes forever for it to get edited and finished and whatever. But uh, Mean Streets is after this. So he kind of had the same, you know, Marty was doing the same thing with the Italian community. He did it 
he's done it a bunch. But, you know, I think it's interesting for him to be able, again, as a young guy, he's, he's you know, he's a young dude. It's his first movie. To be able to have that just, you know, emotional honesty to just be like, all right, I'm not, I'm losing touch or whatever, but uh, I'm going to take judgment out of it. I'm going to take anything out of it and just let, uh, let this world speak for itself without any sort of judgment is not many people have it. You know, there's a lot of filmmakers that just wouldn't have it. A lot of people, you know, how many movies and shit do we see today that, you know, you know, like you said, look back and look with the, you know, rose colored lenses and try to, or whatever, or flip side, try to tell a story set in that time. And they're very judgmental or set in these worlds. They're very judgmental and all of this. And maybe it is just the thing of, he was too young to let his artistic ego get in the way. Uh, I haven't seen his other work, but it sounds like he doesn't do that going forward either. So it just seems like this is a guy who was just a natural born storyteller and knew to not get in his own way. Because if he did, this movie wouldn't be what it is. And we're all better off for it. You know, we do this thing where we pick movies that we would put in the registry. And I'm, I was thinking of what I wanted to do for this one. And I'm the whole time I'm like, fuck, I already picked George Washington. <laughs> before and i'm and if i fucking knew this movie was so if dave david gordon green definitely saw this goddamn movie there's no question in my mind he saw that we're making george washington so like i'm just glad like you know this guy was able to have that foresight to not put himself above the art danielle did you have anything you wanted to to add before we wound down talking about you know the oscars and everything like that oh yeah no i was just gonna say um yeah, like discernment is like such like an important thing to have as an artist. And the fact that, you know, yeah, he was as young as he was and he already realized, you know, I need to take a step back and like let people speak for themselves. Like that takes an incredible amount of uh discipline. Um and like Tom said, like a lack of ego as well to be able to do that because I think um I think a lot of times, um I'm trying not to get myself in trouble, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I think like a lot of times, I think like a lot of filmmakers like don't have like that level of discernment and like, you know, and I'm thinking about filmmakers who are like far older and who have more experience and they don't know to like take a step back and say, you know what, maybe I'm not the right person to insert myself into this particular narrative. Let me, or let me like prioritize other people's voices. Right. So like, I'm not the only voice that this project needs. Like I need to bring in other voices or I need to like let this community speak for itself so that the art ends up being better for it, even if I can't take all the credit myself. So yeah, the fact that Charles Burnett was this, I mean, this was his student film. Like this was like his thesis film. And the fact that he was thinking that far ahead and realized, okay, like there are going to be moments where it's like, okay, I need to take a step back to make sure that this story is told in the in the right way is just, yeah, I think I think a lot of people can learn from that. <laughs> so uh, as we always do, we always wrap up talking about the Oscars. Sometimes this game is hard. Sometimes this game is real easy for Tom. Tom, in 1977... How do you think? There we go. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Academy did not, in fact, uh, recognize Killer of Sheep in any capacity in 77. The best picture nominees that year were The Goodbye Girl, Julia, Star Wars, The Turning Point, and the winner, Annie Hall. 
But uh, just want to point out that other than Star Wars, Killer of Sheep gets in the registry before any of those other films. In fact, Annie Hall's the only other one out of that batch that is also in the registry. Which, speaking of inserting yourself into the movie, that's yep. all Woody Allen ever did. <laughs> I do want to note on that note, when it comes to the National Film Registry, films by the L.A. Rebellion have been inducted uh, multiple times. Killer of Sheep is not the only one. Uh, Daughters of the Dust gets in in 2004. Bless Their Little Hearts gets in in 2013. To Sleep With Anger gets in in 2017. And I believe two years ago, Illusion got in, which is Illusion is also on HBO Max, which is surprising. They don't put a lot of short films. Yeah, it's just there. Oh, that is good to know. I didn't know that. (laughs) Have you have you seen Illusions? I'm sure you have. I don't know why I asked that, but. Um, actually, no, I haven't. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like that's one of those things I've been trying to find, and it's just it's been on, on HBO, HBO Max. Max. It's just like sitting on HBO Max, so cool. I I remember two years ago when we did our episode because whenever they put out a new induction induction list, uh, the way we do it is we go in. Tom and I don't look at what got in, and Kyle will just read the titles off to us. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they said illusions, Kyle read the synopsis, and I immediately he just goes, "That sounds super interesting." And it was like, yeah, we got to find that. And it's just on HBO. I don't. Daughters of the Dust is not on HBO Max. It's not like they have a bunch of her films. If you want to find Daughters of the Dust, that is, I believe, on Tubi. Distribution is weird, everyone. I don't understand. Everyone's favorite streaming app, Tubi. The one that everyone, everyone's just down at the bar talking about Tubi. Immediately goes to, yes. Down at the bar, (laughs) throwing back some beers and some shots, talking about the favorite movie we just watched on Tubi today. You know, that is, just chill, you, know, you know, we talked about the curation of like Criterion. Meanwhile, on Tubi, I can sit down and go, do I want to watch Julie Dash's Daughter of the Dust or do I want to watch Citizen Toxie, the Toxic Avenger 3? They're right next to each other. Tubi How is weird. just like, like you're bobbing for apples, basically. You're just shoving. <laughs> it's just like whoever's picking at Tubi is just, just shoving their hand into, into, the, into the mud and just picking out what, uh... Yeah, Citizen Toxie, okay. Thor, yeah, Thor's okay, yeah. All right, yeah, here's, here's commercial breaks where you don't want them. All right, you want to? We've got Death Wish one, two, four, and five for some reason. Um, anyway. they're missing the best one. <laughs> um, I'm not kidding. It's I know you've made me watch it. I made you and your girlfriend watch it. It's true, Danielle. Thank you so much for joining us, and I should say thank you for thank putting you. up yeah. with us. That's also I was going to say thank element. you. Thank you for tolerating us, and I don't mean us. I'm going to say thank you for tolerating Mike. I know I'm yeah, a gem yeah, to hang yeah, out. That's with. fair. That's fair. Um, you're out of college. You don't want to hang around with people like Mike anymore. It's fine. I get it. But thank you so much for doing this. This was so cool. Uh, this was so much fun. Did you have anything you wanted to plug on the uh, on the on the way out? Um, do I have anything to plug? Uh, I guess just Black Women Directors. Check it out. Um, it's blackwomendirectors.co. And, uh, yeah, just check it out. Any social media you want to throw out? Anything like that? or? Oh, yeah. Um, it could also so be yeah. not if you don't want people to find you on social. That's also cool. I Again, we all work in media. I totally get it. Uh, right, it's yeah. like, never tweet. Don't try to find me. <laughs> Leave me alone. Um, don't tweet at me. <laughs> God damn it. And please don't at me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, actually, no. You you can't sit with us. Uh, so it's, uh, I'm also on the Twitter. Uh, so it's Black Women Directors, but it's uh, spelled B-L-K-W-M-N Directors. And that's on Twitter. 
Well, thank you so much uh, for coming by, and you are obviously welcome back on the show for for a future season if if anything sparks your interest. Uh, you know, we got we got the Kennedy assassination coming Tom, up. Yeah, baby. Tom, are you it's the I'm convinced that's the only movie you know is in the registry is the Zapruder film. <laughs> that's the only one. You keep trying. <laughs> All right, Danielle, thank you so much for joining us. Everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Maltin, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do at the end of each episode is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, well, as I said in the episode, I kind of fucked myself by picking George Washington on an earlier episode. So I had to, you know, really kind of figure out what I was going to do here. And I didn't really overthink this one. I kind of just wanted to go with something simple. A movie that I, you know, I wanted to pick something that I felt like was an important movie for black cinema. uh, But one that wasn't like a direct descendant of this. I didn't want to really send people off to like, in an ideal world, they like kind of double feature what our picks are, or triple feature, I should say, like the movie we're doing and our picks. And I didn't want to throw them something heavy. So I want to pick a, an important movie uh, in black cinema that's pretty light. And uh, I watched it recently and I'm p- putting up uh, Eddie Murphy's Boomerang. You know, there's not many like romantic comedies about like mainstream black romantic comedies where the main character is a well-to-do black guy it's not he's not like some shifty like whatever dude from like the streets or whatever and he's handling a bunch of chicks and he's got to learn how to be like a it's like no he's a well-to-do guy he's you know he's smart funny he's rich he's just the high it's it's kind of like what this movie is doing in its way of not doing the the cliches and uh it's really funny it's really romantic it's very well done it's a shame that it didn't do well when it came out which kind of broke eddie murphy and sent him on that like fucking 20 year norbit spiral but uh i think it's a great movie and i think people should watch it and i think uh it's an important movie in uh you know the black cinema canon and uh i think more people should watch it just got a blu-ray so you actually can watch it so definitely do that so one of the things i latched onto with killer of sheep was the fact that it was Burnett depicting his neighborhood and the world that he knew that was not often captured on film, and if it was, it was not captured the way he saw uh, satisfactorily. Um, and the comment that he made about wanting to let the neighborhood speak for itself and the people speak for itself, and I was thinking about films that do that, films that capture a certain time and a certain place. Um, and the registry has been very good about preserving films because they capture a certain time and place. In the episode, we evoked Midnight Cowboy, which is in the registry. And uh, I've always been drawn to Midnight Cowboy because I've always felt this sort of intrigue about that um, that si- late 60s, 70s uh, scene that was like a blend of, you know, it was the Andy Warhol scene bleeding into like the street hustlers and all that. 
Um, it's captured so well in Lou Reed's Take a Walk on the Wild Side. And that's kind of what reminded me of this film that I, I think is exceptional, um, which is Paul Morrissey's Flesh, also called Andy Warhol's Flesh, 1968 film. Uh, you know, actually uh, stars someone uh, who Tom might know, uh, Joe D'Alessandro, uh, because Joe D'Alessandro started out doing these Paul Morrissey films, uh, the Andy Warhol art scene, and then went on to do a bunch of Italian horror movies. Uh, I think Killer Nun he's in and a couple other things. Flesh was Paul Morrissey uh, making a film about a hustler working on the streets of New York City. And some of the Andy Warhol stars uh, show up in this, particularly a very memorable appearance by Candy Darling, who, to bring it back, to take a walk on the wild side, Candy came from out on the island in the back room. She was everybody's darling is about Candy Darling. Flesh is similar to Killer of Sheep, very much an amateur actor's just letting what happens happen play out on screen. It's very visceral. It's very real. Um, and it just captures that era of New York and that point in New York in such a fascinating way um, and preserves a, a, a New York that no longer exists. So uh, I would love uh, Flesh, Paul Morrissey's Flesh, to be in the National Film Registry. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Danielle Scruggs for joining us. Join us next week for a John Cassavetes classic. Video podcaster Robert Bellissimo joins us for A Woman Under the Influence. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance. On the National Film Registry.